Internet people, please say hello to Crystal Smith Hansel. Hi. 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 And uh, she's, you can tell us apart because she has the red hair and tattoos, and I have the no hair, and uh, I forgot to shave this morning. But great to be here with you. We're going to be talking about uh, Crystal's ministry, Jesus in Disguise. Look, I got to tell you, Crystal, that doesn't begin to talk about what we're going to do. You, you grew up in a, a difficult circumstance. Give me 30 seconds. Um, I grew up in a home where I was sexually abused beginning in infancy. Um, so were some of my brothers and sisters, which eventually led to their suicide. And um, then can I say your life went downhill from there? Oh, it did. I did. Uh, I became a prostitute at age 12. Um, shortly after that, I became addicted to drugs. And, you know, I spent quite a bit of time just living under a bridge, lost to addiction. And now you're making a difference in a lot of people's lives. So that's what the ministry is called, Jesus in Disguise. Listen or watch or join us. It's about to start. Welcome to the St. Joseph Radio Presents live program broadcasting to you from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. The program that for over 30 years has brought you eloquent speakers from across the globe to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. Our program covers a variety of topics relating to current issues and occurrences in our daily lives. Now, with the aid of technology, we are able to bring the gospel message to the four corners of the world, where Christ himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. It is our hope at St. Joseph Radio that through these programs, we can help evangelize the world and change one soul at a time. Now, here is your host to introduce today's guest and topic. Well, thank you, Matt, and I am your host today. I'm Peter Karutz, and we are here live in studio with Crystal Smith Hansel. Crystal, welcome to the program. Hi. Well, and uh, by the way, remember we're also on YouTube and Roku, so if you're going to need a copy of this program, and you will, you know where to order it. The name of our program is The Heart of a Prostitute, The Heart of a Bishop. Uh, you, you, you all better buckle up because you're about to go on an incredible ride. Crystal is the Catholic Woman of the Year 2021, and when I was at this dinner, they read the various bios of everybody, and when they read Crystal's, the place went silent. And when they announced that you were the winner, there wasn't a single person who didn't think that you were the right one for the moment. And Crystal, you are the right one for this moment. So... So buckle up, people. We're about to go, but we, I, I like to keep my job, too. So we have to follow rules, and our first rule is that we always start our radio program with a prayer. And Crystal, I see you have a beautiful crucifix on. Would you do us uh, the honor of starting us out with a prayer? I will. Father God, I come before you, Father, and I thank you just for who you are, Father. 
I thank you for the fact that you are awesome all by yourself, Father God, that you dazzle us with your love, Father. I ask you, Father, during this time to put your words upon my mouth, Father God, what you would say upon my tongue, Father, that my words may bring glory to you, Father. I pray that there are ears that would receive the things I say, Father, that people would learn and understand that sometimes in our imperfections, you are displayed as perfect, Father, that sometimes those things that we think we just can't overcome and wear us down, we get caught in that circle over and over and over again, we fail, that those moments are the moments where you break through and dazzle us with how much you love us and your ability to heal and make clean, Father. I thank you for this time. I thank you for all you have done in my life, and I ask a blessing for every single person within the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. So I, I, thank you, Crystal. I, I just wanted to, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Our programs tend to be different from one week to the next. Last week we had Monsignor Morris and we talked about baptism. So we had a priest who was a Monsignor who has a little collar and, a, and, a, and, a, and the red uh, cummerbund or whatever we call it. Today Crystal is joining us. And Crystal is wearing a crucifix, but she has bright, hot pink hair and hot pink boots and uh, a t-shirt and a black skirt and I and I'll just say you have a bunch of tattoos all over your arms a little what do we call that thing in your lip thingy there uh, that's a lip piercing lip piercing <laughs> this is going to be a little bit different so Crystal you're sitting here about to talk on a Catholic radio station but where did you start out in your life where did Crystal's life begin um, I, you know, was born into a family that was incestuous on both sides. Um, some people have a hard time imagining that, but basically what ha happened is both my parents had been sexually abused by their parents. So when they met as teenagers, they shared this and had this in common. They kind of like linked up in their broken places. Um, but what happened as a result is I was born into a family with a pedophile, both on my mother's side and my grandfather's side. Um, I was... The medical records show that I was taken to the hospital for the first time um, at eight months old for vaginal trauma. Um, so I grew up, you know, my life started in a home where sexual abuse was just, I can't remember a time before sexual abuse. You know, when I look back at my life, it's just something I've always known. Um, so I grew up in a home with abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. It was just a, a tough time. And when I turned 12, I had some behavioral issues. I started acting out. And my parents didn't really want to deal with me acting out. Um, so they um, dropped me off on a street corner in the inner city and drove away. Uh, they just left me there. I, I was 12. Um, that was, you know, kind of a rude awakening for me. I had been living in San Jose, California. So I, you know, lived in a suburb, uh, you know, predominantly white upper class suburb. And um, I was dropped in, you know, one of the worst urban areas um, that, you know, you can find. Uh, it was a real culture shock for me. Um, very shortly thereafter, um, I was introduced to prostitution, um, which is, you know, how I supported myself until about age 24. And around age 14 or 15, I got into hard drugs, um, which is something I struggled with, you know, well into my 30s. Um, the abuse, the sexual abuse in the home, um, I had siblings, um, the two that I knew and got to spend time with both committed suicide over the severity of the sexual abuse. Um, my sister in particular, who was my best friend, so the grandfather on my mother's side was a pastor. 
Um, so sexual abuse was really mixed with religion. Um, during the summer, I spent the summer with my father's grandfather, so with my paternal pedophile. <laughs> my sister spent the summer with my mother's father, my maternal side pedophile. Um, but he was a pastor, and so a lot of her abuse was um, wrapped around religion, which was really difficult for her. Um, the thing I remember best when I look back at that um, is at 8 o'clock her entire life, um, it was her job to bathe my grandfather. So at 8 o'clock, they went to the bathroom her entire life and just shut the door behind them. And at 9 o'clock was family prayer time. <laughs> so she came out of that bathroom shortly before 9 where we all sat and gathered for prayer, and he led the prayer. And this was the fabric that made her life. And um, while she was still very young, she began to, um, you know, lose track of her sanity. Her PTSD became so bad that she really thought everyone was her grandfather, even though he had died. And she was not able to maintain a hold on reality and committed suicide uh, shortly thereafter. So I would say that sexual abuse probably colored everything about my life um, for quite some time. Yeah, and you, and you said that uh, when you were, and I can't imagine it dropped dropped off at age twelve, with no resources, no no hope, and w what were you going to do? And don't know. But what was what? Which is a horrible circumstance. But what is also pervasive is we all think of our parents as these great protectors, and their and yours were not. And when we think of God. We think of him as a father, and when the father models in our life are horrible, that must just must have just driven you away from God. That must have been so mm. far away from your life. I mean, in terms of a relationship with God or a looking to God, or uh, it, it, because your examples of a father, you said that so many times in your prayer, a God father, right? Mm. Because you know he's a good, a good father. He's the one who loves you very much. But it was, was there any, any place for God in, your, in the brokenness that you were at, the, de the destitution, really, that you were in? Um, it's a little complex explaining uh, my faith up until age 24. It gets much easier after age 24. But my family, who sexually and physically abused me, you know, primarily sexually, uh, we didn't miss church. Uh, we went to church with, you know, regularity. Um, we lived a life that was based on religion, which I would like to note that religion and devotion to God are two entirely different things. Right. But we lived a life that was devoted to religion, and so the people who were abusing me would frequently take me to church or services. And then they would, like, um, watch me to see if, you know, I would get saved. And... It really, really bothered me as a child. It kind of made my skin crawl because I had their attention focused on me. And clearly what they wanted was, you know, for me to go up to the altar and get saved. And I am a very obstinate person. Uh, the Lord's had to do a lot of work with me. But even as a child, I was not going to go up and, you know, be at that altar praying what they wanted me to pray. You know, I felt like they were all looking at me. It like, was a negative, right? Yeah, it, it was, was a negative. It was a very negative. It was something you were wanted to run from because it was so hypocritical, contradictory. It made me mad. It made, got... Yeah, making me mad. Yeah. <laughs> it made me really mad. I couldn't understand how... Okay, uh, this is the easiest way I can explain it. Um, I wasn't quite kindergarten age, and there was some sort of abuse going on in my home. Um, I don't remember the instances of the abuse, but I remember that I was pretty hysterical. I'm probably about age four at this time, and I curl up in my doorway, and I'm crying, I'm sobbing, you know, where you're, you can hiccup because you're crying so hard. 
And, you know, because I'd been brought to church so regularly, I close my eyes in that spot and I beg God to help me. Um, just with, you know, the Bible says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain move and it'll move. And there at four years old, I had the faith of a mustard seed. I believed that this God they had told me about would help me. And I begged out to him with, you know, every fiber of my being, you know, God help me. And I thought when I opened my eyes that he would show up. I thought when I opened my eyes that things would be better. And I can still to this day remember when I opened my eyes and everything was just the same. Throughout my life, I never doubted that God existed. I just doubted that he was good. I would think back to that prayer, and it seemed to me that God had abandoned me just like everybody else. You know, that there was, a, you know, a lot of talk about this God that loved me, but when the rubber hit the road, you know, I didn't matter to him. He hadn't bothered to intercede for me. And so I grew up with this anger at my family, this anger at the church, and this feeling of despondency towards God, this God who didn't, you know, bother to show up on my behalf, who just let these things happen to me. And then, you know, after my sister committed suicide, a little of that became rage. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I had definitely had some religious struggles um, as I got older and became a more, you know, advanced prostitute and drug addict. Um, that changed and I became really angry at God for allowing this. I couldn't really understand how God had not allowed me a way to provide for myself, a home to go home to, safety and security. I couldn't understand why I prayed and God didn't answer. And I just got to the point, like I could see myself sinking further and further into sin. You know, that 12-year-old little girl that got dropped off, she had ideals. You know, she had a conscience and a series of, you know, morals and ethics that, you know, think about what you were like at 12 years old, you know? You you wanted to do right for the most yeah. part, yeah. you know? And one choice at a time to survive, I watched right slip away from me until, you know, I became the kind of character that, you know, you read about in books. <laughs> You know, I became this tough, shady character, and the further I slid from what was right, the angrier I got at God about it. It seemed to me there hadn't been a path of righteousness for me that I could walk. It seemed to me that every step I took towards survival, I took towards my own demise. And I was very angry at God about that for a long time. Yeah, I know you, I know you must have been. Uh, you know, we, we live in some, a society where sometimes they're saying, you know, let's legalize prostitution and this and that. And so I won't get into that for a moment. But one, one thing I think we should realize from the beginning of your story is um, young girls, 12-year-olds with great ideals, have, have, you know, high expectations, the world ahead of them, they don't choose this. No. This is something that they are, just to, just to be in, the, in that life is, 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 a, is an abuse. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to be there. Uh, I dated a girl when I was in college and um, wound up, and her mother had died. Uh, her parents were divorced and were in a different state. And then I wound up meeting her sister. And um, her sister was a prostitute. And she was terribly hurt, terribly hurting. Uh, so from this few things that you've said, let's just get that out of our mind. The, these girls who are in, in here are just trying to survive. This is not something they aspire to. Nothing to aspire to. But t tell me... Tell me about uh, the years that passed. So you, you, you've, uh, you've been very brave with your story, you know, and very honest. You know, prostitute at 12 tw till 24, in the middle of it, you're in, into drugs. What, what changed? Or what happened after you're 24? I don't want to get ahead of myself. 
Well, so what had happened by the time I had become 24 is I had reached, you know, um, a relatively high level of prostitution. You know, I hadn't reached that, you know, very top ring, but I was a ring or two behind it, Um, which for those of you who aren't familiar with prostitution, there's a whole, you know, variable starting with the woman who stands on the street corner and sells her body for, you know, say $5, you know, all the way up to these, you know, call girl escorts that make thousands and thousands of dollars for their time. And, you know, there's a wide variety in between. Um, I had started out as that girl on the corner, and through time and circumstance, I had worked my way up to where I was making at least several hundred dollars an hour, um, sometimes upward of that. So I made a great deal of money, and I was addicted. So what I did with that great deal of money was I spent it on drugs every day. You, um, you Okay, so when you hit this high point where actually you could survive and survive well, it was getting eaten up by drugs. I just wanted to be numb. Yeah. Like, L- if you L- had my job, you didn't want to think or feel a whole Absolutely. Much. Yeah. And let me, let me just remind our, viewer, our, viewer, our viewers and our listeners that this is St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your host, Peter Kroots, and on the radio with us live is Crystal Smith Hansel. If, if you all would like a copy of this, um, this program, uh, you can call us at 636-447-6000, and we'll be happy to give you one. So you are fully addicted. I am fully addicted. Um, there are, you know, other variables and details with that, but I'm not sure that you guys want to hear them. So let's just leave it at the fact that I looked very, very rough. Um, I had bruises. I had track marks. I was very addicted. And I'd had an infection that had sat in in my left hand and the inner elbow of my right arm. Um, the infection had caused severe swelling um, from abscessing, and it had begun to, you know, shoot red streaks at my arms. Um which, you know, street people, um, we're real familiar with the medical symptoms that mean you must go to the hospital because we are usually not treated very well at emergency room or hospital facilities. We're kind of chased out. So, you know, you learn real quick the things that mean you have to go, and those red streaks were pretty scary. Um, so, but I learned to hide them. Um, I just bought, you know, like the real tall gloves, you know, and I would stuff my arm and my hand into those gloves so my clientele couldn't see them. Um And it was getting pretty bad. And I had a gentleman that was my driver at the time, and he talked me into getting in the car and told me we were going to go pick up some more drugs. And when I got into the car, he drove up in front of, in St. Louis, the local hospital here, Barnes Jewish Hospital, and he, you know, physically ejected me from the car. And he drove off telling me that a one-handed hooker wasn't any good, that I needed to get some medical help. He didn't put it quite that politely. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I came into the hospital. Okay, well, I mean, let's let's just back up there. Um, so the abscess on my left arm, you know, was probably about as big as, say, an orange. And the one on my inner elbow on the right, you know, was more the size of a softball. You know, because what happens when you inject drugs is sometimes that infection gets caught underneath the skin and it can't get, get out. So it just continues to swell and fill with fluid. You know, you have to go to the hospital to get them fixed. And I was too high to go to the hospital, so they had gotten, you know, really bad. So when he first kicked me out of the car, you know, I, I stood there. Which I'd like to give an image to you, because at that point, I'm 24 years old, I'm very tall, I weigh maybe 90 pounds, I am in very high stiletto heels, a very short mini skirt, covered in bruises and track marks, you know, and he kicks me out, like, you can see the people staring at me, you know, and like I'm trying to, you know, convince myself to go in and face normal society and the stares and the whispers or whatever, but it was really difficult, and I almost didn't go in. Um, So when I walked in, you know, um, in the inner cities they have, before you can go in the emergency room, they have like a glass particle where you have Mm -hmm. to go through and security checks you and all of that. 
So when I got to that glass particle, I handed the man my purse and he started to pull out, you know, crack pipes and needles. And I just kind of watched it all, you know, stack up in front of him. And I wasn't real bright at that time. I was real high. And I, you know, told him I wanted my property back. You know, on a humorous note, he told me, was I aware that my property was illegal? Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> I just got mad. I was like, you know, that's my private property. I didn't right. know I had that many drugs in my purse. I yeah. wanted them back. Right. Uh, God bless him, because uh, he said to me, you know, young lady, I can do one of two things. And he kind of picked up the trash can. He said, I can give you back your property that is illegal and have the police meet you here and take you to jail for your property that's illegal, or I can just swipe all of this into the trash can and you can go in the emergency room and get the help you need. Because, young lady, you sure look like you could use some help. Brave man. Yeah. So I walked in the hospital, and um, not too long after taking a look at me, um, they decided I needed immediate surgery. Oh. Um, my left hand, I came very, very close to losing my left hand. So there's no sit in the waiting room. There's no any of that. They're, you know, ushering me back to surgery. So now I'm going to go back because I try and tell my story without too many details that, you know, upset people who haven't lived that kind of life. Um, but when you get a girl who was sold into the sex industry, um, she may not always be the most cooperative. She may not want to go out and sleep with a bunch of guys and give you all her money. Uh, she may feel some type of way about that. So if someone wants to keep a girl um, and have them, you know, perform their work with no problem and hand over their money, you have to break the spirit of the girl. It's yeah. called breaking the girl. Um I was broke in when I was 16, and the, you know, particulars of how I was broke in are, you know, pretty awful, so I'm not going to share those with you. But I am going to tell you that as the nurse and the team tried to push me towards the bed, you know, as a group of them, to push me towards the bed so they could put me under anesthesia and do surgery, you know, PTSD kicked in, and I, I kind of lost track of where I was, which caused them to call in security, you know, so now I'm surrounded by large men that are kind of trying to force me onto the bed. And at that point, I just kind of lost hold of my sanity a little bit. I lost track of where I was. With my eyes, I could see where I was, but in my mind and emotions, it was like I was back when I was 16 years old. And I mean, I really began to fight these people. I, I was fighting like my life depended on it. I did not intend to go down on that bed. Uh, and eventually, you know, they forced me to the bed and were trying to, you know, restrain me and give me anesthesia. And I was not being cooperative. And the last thing I remember before I lost consciousness, you know, and, and it's just a moment I'll remember all my life. Um, this hand came down and it rested on my forehead. And the man the hand belonged to, although I couldn't see him very clearly, but I knew it was his voice. You know, he told me that everything was going to be okay. And the anesthesia might have had an effect, but I believe it was the peace of God that I felt from his hand because as that hand, you know, met my forehead and he said these words, I felt peace. I just felt peace flood through me. There was no more fight. There was no more fear. There was just peace. And uh, right after that, you know, I lost consciousness. And when I woke up, I was in the hospital. I spent the next six weeks there um, while my left hand recovered. And, um, while I was there, he came to my room every day to tell me about Jesus. And I had decided, you know, quite some time ago that I didn't have any time for Christians. Um, I was indecisive exactly how angry I was at God, but there was no question how angry I was at his workers. So people did not want to tell me about Jesus because I got real nasty real quick. So, you know, he starts coming up to my room every day to, you know, talk to me about Jesus and anybody else I'd have thrown out on their ear. 
but this man who'd been so kind to me at my worst point, and, you know, I mean, I'm sure the security guards didn't mean any harm, but they weren't, you know, trying to talk and comfort me into the bed. They were trying to wrestle and pin me down to that bed. And this one guard in his comfort, as much as I didn't want to hear about God, I was not going to be rude to that man. As far as I concerned, I owed him some sort of debt, and I wasn't going to pay it by throwing him out of my room. I was going to let him in and drone about Jesus. If he wanted to come in and drone about Jesus, I was going to let him. And oh boy, did he. You know, I was there, I think, like a total of five and a half weeks, and he worked there, so he spent a good portion of his shift in there talking to me. And in the beginning, I just slept a lot. And uh, when he couldn't be there, he had his um, family or his church family come in and stand there and pray for me. So if he wasn't there talking about Jesus, you know, I'd open my eyes and there'd be somebody quietly praying in the corner. And you weren't very happy about this. I, I wasn't that amused. You know, yeah. there were little things that made it sink in. Um, for example, I had to wear fake light latex skin to work. Um, I am a neurotic picker, and I had picked a whole bunch of holes in my skin, which you couldn't see when I worked because I wore, you know, an application that hid that. But in the hospital, I was, of course, wasn't putting that on, and I had, you know, these open wounds. I looked terrible, and the man had, I think, like 10 kids. And sometimes he would come visit with all 10 kids, and, like, they would just stick the <laughs> newborn in my arms in the bed. <laughs> you know? And, I mean, I have bleeding wounds on those arms. And, like, they didn't see anything about the physical me. All they saw was the suffering spirit in that bed and how to heal it. Yeah. But I remember the first time they passed me that little baby. and. Yeah. Like, yeah. that wasn't just talk. That wasn't somebody just talking to me about Jesus. That was somebody living it. You know, so I kind of started listening to him. You know, I I started actually listening. It's like before I had heard, but I started to open the ear, you know, right. because he was living his face. Right. You know, so after, um, you know, about five weeks or so, a little over five weeks, they told me it was, you know, time for me to be discharged. And, you know, that was the first break I'd ever really had. From, How old are you at this time? I'm 24. You're 24. So okay. I've been prostituting 12 years. Yeah. And that was the first real break I'd ever had in my life. You know, it was the first time I'd had day after day after day that I didn't have to, you know, sleep with unknown men for money. And part of that, okay, part of the reasoning behind that was is I didn't let myself take very many days off. Because if you take many days off, it's sure hard to go back to oh, it. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I just kind of made sure to make a routine of it where I didn't have to have that much difficulty. But here at 24, I've had, you know, a month and a half off. Right. I didn't want It's to a lifetime. Yeah, I didn't want to go back to work. Yeah. You know, I, I had an apartment, and the only way I had to pay for it, you know, my landlord was one of my tricks. You know, I had my phone line was paid for by a gentleman. You know, everything in my life revolved around the money I made through prostitution. And short of going back out and going back to prostitution, I had nowhere else to go, and I had no one else to help me. But I also felt like I could not go back and do it. You know, at 24 years old, I had a type of weariness I had weariness down in my bones, and I just, I couldn't go back, you know, but I didn't have any options. I didn't have anywhere else to go, you know, and so they came in, and they were like, okay, Crystal, you're being discharged tomorrow. You know, you can leave, and all of a sudden, you know, the words from that security guard, you know, just like struck me and pierced my heart. That security guard had kept telling me, you know, if you just ask God for help, he will help you. You know, if you will just turn from this wickedness you're in and turn to God and ask for help, God is waiting to help you, Crystal. And finally, you know, I just kind of shrugged and I thought, you know, well, what have I got to lose? You know, life had basically beaten me down on my knees. And I'd kind of like to stop and pause there because a lot of people, you know, when they get beat down to their knees, they reach this out of hope place. I mean, I was there. Life had beat me up and beat me down until I had to hit my knees. And that was the greatest blessing of my entire life. 
because without the things that had beaten me down to my knees, I would have never learned that I had a need for God, so I never would have called out to God, so I never would have known my Savior who has blessed me in such abundance I cannot even express it to you. You know, all the events that led up to that, you know, at the time, I was not particularly grateful for them. I was angry. I was hopeless. I was all of these things. But in hindsight, when when I look back, if I had just had a comfortable life, if I just had this comfortable life, would my obstinate, you know, independent self, would I have known that I had a need for the living God? And even if I'd known the need, would I have had such a deep hole for him to step in and fill? Anyway, I got off. So... You know, they came in, they said it was time to go, and I I thought, well, you know, why not pray? You know, like, the worst that can happen is he does nothing, right? And I don't think I had really prayed since the time I was like, you know, (laughs) four to six years old in that hallway. You know, that, that was the last time I can really think I prayed. But, you know, in that spot, I prayed what today I consider, you know, my salvation prayer. And what I literally said to God is, if you will help me, I will change. And my life changed forever that day. You, you, you think you made the first step, but I think God was waiting for you to say, I'm ready, and you were ready. And like the father and the prodigal son, he came running to meet you. He sure did. So this is, uh, this is your opportunity to take a, a minute. We have about two minutes. Go tell a friend to come and listen to this program. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about your ministry, Jesus in Disguise, and how life has changed. Amen. <laughs> to teach your children about our Catholic faith? Colby Academy has the solution, offering a curriculum that is loyal to the magisterium, classical, Ignatian, flexible, and affordable. Colby can help with all your homeschooling needs. We offer a wide range of services, including live online courses for those looking for assistance teaching their students, recorded self-paced courses for those who want teacher instruction while needing the flexibility to move at their own pace, and traditional homeschool courses for maximum flexibility flexibility, and home education. Our support services include advising for parents, record-keeping and transcript services, a grading service, standardized testing, and guidance and college counseling. For more information, check out their website at colby.org. That's K-O-L-B-E dot org. Or give them a call. Area code 707-255-6499. That's 707-255-6499. It's Colby Academy. St. Joseph Catholic Radio is proud to announce the launch of SJEN-TV, the St. Joseph Evangelization Network. SJEN-TV is a premier online Catholic broadcasting network providing quality Catholic programming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have programming such as live studio interviews, St. Joe's Java speaker presentations, current Catholic issues, and the Pro-Life series. We're featuring the many talented speakers out of Orange County, California, and this Archdiocese of St. Louis, Missouri including Professor John Gresham, Father James Mason, Karen Nokemper, Rick Hollerick, Bill Federer, and many more. To review the program list, go to sjen.tv or on Roku, sjen.tv. All this programming is free, and we are welcoming sponsorship of new programs. Find out more at sjen.tv. Welcome back to St. Joseph Radio Presents. I'm your host, Peter Karutz, and we are here live in studio with Crystal Smith Hansel. Um, before we get back to your story, which is moving to say the least, I, I just want to share with some of our listeners, uh, one of our volunteers, um, uh, Bob Malloway. He, he um, was uh, a mainstay with us. He did the video, he did the audio, he ran the booth, um, and uh, 
you know, he, he, he was in a terrible accident several years ago. His house blew up. He was terribly badly burned. He lost most of his fingers. And that's when he came to start volunteering here. He's been a great joy and a great man. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he passed away just the uh, day before yesterday. So we remember him. Uh, we love him. And we ask you to pray for Bob, please. A very, very, very good man. Uh, so pray for Bob. And uh, it, it reminds me that uh, God has a plan. And when Bob's house blew up, when he was in a coma, and when he came to work here, in, in, in that state that you've seen people with burns, right, um, his life changed, and he, he started working 100% for, for God, and he changed. Um, uh, anyway, we remember him, and, and um, in, in our darkest moments, um, when we think we have, you know, have no hope and we're taking that first step to find God, remember this, he's been walking with us and suffering with us all of that time, but he respects our free will. And when we, in our free will, turn to him, he's like that father and the prodigal son who is running to meet us. Crystal, um, You've you've been very honest and brave in telling us the story of how you got to where you were, um, and but then things changed. Um, I'm I'm going to just mention the name of your ministry again, Jesus in Disguise. How did how did that come about? What I mean, I, I can't hardly find the words to find the dramatic change between having abscesses and <laughs> and being in the hospital for six weeks. And starting some kind of a ministry, I, I mean, that's not a, a 360. That's, a, you know, a 920. How did this happen? Um, well, you know, it definitely wasn't an overnight thing. So I'm going to skip a few years because when I gave my life to Christ at 24, you know, it took a while to work some of the kinks out. Um, so I'm going to fast forward and leave out some details because we just don't have all the time at the world. But I was doing very, very well. And my sister and brother committed suicide back to back. And, you know, when there's a scripture in the Bible and it talks about, you know, the farmer and the seed, you know, he, he scatters the seed. You know, some seed is good seed. But, you know, some seed gets, you know, choked out by the world. Some seed, you know, the sun comes and shrivels it. And I just didn't have very good roots yet. I was a baby Christian and I didn't have very good roots. And my sister's suicide was, you know, particularly um, unpleasant in the details and when my sister and brother both committed suicide, I got very angry at God, um, specifically because my sister had been hurt so badly sexually by the church and because she had become a suicide where, you know, the status of her soul was uncertain. For me, I just got focused on this. My sister sexually abused by the church. My sister commits suicide. My sister now possibly in hell because of this. And I just got so angry at God. And I shook my fist at him and I kind of gave up on my good life and um, I moved under a bridge. So, man, and there's an amazing story with that, but I, I, can't, I can't tell you all the amazing stories today. So I moved under the bridge. I became addicted again, and then I literally had what I call a manifestation of God that redirected me. Um, I'll give you the summary of that so we can move on. Um, I was in the bushes. I was shooting up drugs. I was using a very banged-up needle. Um, it was dark, and because of this you know, set of circumstances, basically I was just plunging an old dull needle into my arm over and over again, trying to get the drugs in, and my arm was just running blood in the bushes. 
And I started to cry out to God, and I said, God, you know, help me. And at first, I meant for him to help me get the needle in my arm. But it took so long that I kept crying out, help me. And at some point, that prayer really changed, and it became, God, help me. So now I'm saying, you know, crying hysterically, trying to get this needle in my arm. I'm crying hysterically, you know, out to God. God, help me. God, help me. And in that moment, I had a revelation that would stay with me for the rest of my life. I did not hear an auditory voice, but I heard a message clear as day. And what I heard without words was God said to me, why are you asking me for help when you're holding your God in your right hand? And I looked down and there was my hand clutching my needle full of heroin. And all of a sudden it occurred to me that I wasn't going through a few things since my sister and brother had died and me and God were going to work it out later. That there was a real possibility that my soul was lost to idolatry. And that if I were to die, I, I could have damned myself because no matter how many times I said I was worshiping God, you know, and going through a bad stage with my addiction because my siblings had died, that to the revelation I received, that was not so. It was decisively possible based on my actions that I was worshiping something other than God. And people who worship something other than God may not inherit the kingdom of God. And this became very frightening for me. Um, so at that point, I began to pray. I prayed several times a day. I got down on my knees, and I prayed God to send me to jail where I couldn't get to drugs anymore. Um, and eventually he did. Um, it was crazy because I actually had a ticket for, like, begging for a tank of gas, and I wound up doing, like, four and a half months, shuffled around the country. It was crazy. Like, God really answered my prayer. And for those of you who have a sense of humor, like, every day I would kneel twice, and I would be like, God, please just send me to jail so I can't get to the drugs anymore. And then one day I was begging, and I saw the cop pass, and, like, I instantly knew that that was the time. I was like, God, I didn't mean it. I don't, I don't want to go to jail right now. <laughs> Send me to jail, but not right now. <laughs> right, not, not, not right now, God. And sure enough, I watched him, you know, hit the lights and break a Yui, and I knew right then that God had answered my prayer, and I was going to jail. And when I first got to jail, you know, every day I just wanted to, like, claw through the bars, you know, to get back to my drug. Like, it was just this encompassing addiction is a terrible thing and it was just this encompassing need to like drag myself through the bars and get to the drugs but I was there you know close to five months and every day that feeling became a little less and I was returned to the freedom where I once again had you know the free will to turn to God you know sin can be a very slippery slope and when my sister and brother died I didn't really mean to wind up back on drugs under a bridge I was just in a lot of pain, and I wanted to numb my pain. So, you know, I made some sinful choices so I didn't have to deal with the death of my sister and brother. And then that made it a little easier to make some more sinful choices, you know. And the next thing you know, I mean, here I am in this really, you know, terrible situation that may cost me my immortal soul. So when I get to jail, you know, day by day, that, that old life fell off, you know, and I was able to focus on what I wanted to focus to, which was God. You know, the chains began to fall off. Those right, chains right. of addiction. Right. You know, and it was real funny because I couldn't figure out why I was there so long over half a tank of gas. So I was in a little country jail and I kept, you know, writing letters upstairs. I was like, how long are you guys going to keep me here over half a tank of gas? This isn't fair. You know, but I had started really reaching out to the women in the jail. Um, jail is not a pleasant place. And I began to witness to a lot of the women. Um, man, I wish I had more time today. Um, but eventually I began to see the fruit of the work I was doing with them. And finally, I, I realized, you know, that maybe this is just where God wanted me to be. That maybe it is it was, where God needed you to be for, not, not for, for me, you, for these other women. For them. There were no jail services. Yeah. There were no Bibles. God, you know. I, God, I was speaking to someone last night, and, and they said, I'm a secular humanist. And, you know, how does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But 
God makes good out of all of our bad choices. He does. Not only for you, but for other people too. He was making good. All these bad decisions, he is making good. You're begging to get out to get to your stuff again. He's making good use of your time he for was. these other people. He was. Uh, on a side note, I you know, um, went to court you know, months later on the same charges, and um, two of the women there had been in my cell. I hadn't even known them that well because they came in as I was leaving, and um, they told me that after thinking and listening to what I had said to them in jail, that they had decided to give their lives to Christ and were sober today. I mean, I was just like running into court. And I didn't even really recognize them that much. And here are these two women telling me, you know, that they account their salvation to the word I said. And I, it, it just, it was kind of mind blowing. So, but anyway, I've been, you know, sober, you know, almost five months now. And, you know, I had a lot of time to study the Bible. It's the really only thing I like to do in jail. So I'm teaching a lot of Bible studies and stuff. And suddenly it occurred to me that maybe I shouldn't fight God to get out of there. You know, that maybe God wanted me in there to do a work for him and seeing how, you know, when he gave me all the freedom in the world, I'd sure made a mess of things. He had put me somewhere safe to do his work. So then I wrote another letter to send upstairs to the courthouse. And I was like, you know what, you guys can just ignore all the letters you've been ignoring because it's occurred to me that maybe this is where God wants me. So if you want to hold me here forever for a half a gas, half a tank of gas ticket, you just feel free and do that. I send a daggum letter upstairs and within 24 hours, they call my name, Smith, bunk and junk. Like, I always kind of connected it together because it was like as soon as I surrendered to that will of God where, you know, you just, you want me to stay in here, you want me to do your work, I'm just going to accept that and do it with a good attitude. And then they're like, okay, you can leave now, doors open. <laughs> so then I got out of jail. And okay, here's, here's the kicker. I was still homeless. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so now I've done all this work and I've changed, you know, I've, I've grown, you know, morally and spiritually and, but I had nowhere to live. So I, you know, got out of jail and I started, you know, going back to the places I lived, but I could see things with different eyes now. My eyes were no longer clouded, you know, with drugs, the need for drugs, the getting of drugs. You know, they were no longer crowded with, you know, my, my eyes had looked out and they had seen things with this like street vision. You know, um, I had lived on the streets so long that... I had a certain way of watching when I looked out. And when I came out of jail after five months of nothing but prayer, basically prayer and Bible study, it was different. And when I looked out, I saw such pity for the human beings that I had known because I watched this particular cycle. I, I was sitting under a bridge, and these people I had known a very long time and cared for, they would walk down from underneath the bridge, which the ground is just littered with shringes and crack pipes, and they would walk down over all those shringes and crack pipes into the center of traffic, you know, which was not very far away, and they would stand there in the center and they would beg until they could get, you know, eight or nine dollars because you have to have ten to pay the drug dealer. But if you hurry him, you can only have eight or nine and you can play it off as ten. So they would walk from under this bridge on like a carpet of shringes to the center of traffic where they would stand until they could get ten dollars and then they would walk across a gravel lot and they would buy ten dollars worth of drugs and then they would walk back up underneath the bridge where they would sit down and shoot him and then they would do it all over again. And that was the entire consistency of their life. There was no stop for food. There was no stop for shower. There was, that was the entire fabric of their lives. And as I can sit, continue to sit there, I realized it had been the entire fabric of mine. You know, there's this horrible, depressing cycle I was witnessing. And it wasn't just these few people I knew. Everywhere I went as a homeless person, because as a homeless person, the police are constantly chasing you to, you know, the end of their district. So as a homeless person, you're constantly being pushed by the city from one area to another. No matter where I went, you know, it was always the same thing. They, you know, would live in their little area, whether it was under a bridge or behind a dumpster or whatever it was. They would walk out to the closest begging space because they lived next to their begging space where they could beg and get their drugs right next to each other. And then they would do that and they would go right back to where they were and use the drugs. And it never stopped. 
And two things occurred to me in that point. Number one occurred to me that I was very, very blessed by God that that wasn't me anymore. <laughs> like I hadn't been able to see that when I was living that. But God, for whatever reason, had heard my prayer and had delivered me, and I didn't have to live like that anymore. You know, I had a new life. You know, and number two, it occurred to me that in all the times I'd lived there, you know, we didn't like Christians very much. You know, okay, so here's just a really small example is as a beggar, when you go out and beg, the best night you beg is always Saturday night. There's no begging that is better than Saturday night because on Saturday night, people go and they drink a little and they get to feeling good. And if you go out and, you know, beg on Saturday night, that's where you're going to make the most money you make of the week. Well, every homeless person, every beggar knows that, you know, you shouldn't even get up and bother on Sunday morning. Because on Sunday morning, all the Christians are going to be out, you know, in their great clothes with their little Jesus bumper stickers. They are not going to stop for you. They are definitely not going to give you money, and they are probably not even going to give you food. Most of them won't even look at you, and if they do, they shake their little heads. And you can stand out there for hours, and you're, you're not even going to get $5. So most of us don't like Christians, you know, very much. Our understanding—I'm just going to give you a short story that helped me understand. My first year being actually street-side homeless, no shower, no clothes, no food, sleeping on concrete, I could not wait when Easter was coming up. I knew Easter was around the corner, and I figured that I was going to eat really good for Easter, right? Like, you know, I just figured that the Easter, everybody would be giving leftover food, and I'd been so hungry for so long. You know, when you're in addiction, you could only spend your money on drugs. You can't spend it on food. But I knew Easter was coming, and, man, I just knew I was going to eat good because all the Christians would be out, and, of course, they would feed us, right? And, I mean, I literally thought about taking myself to a mental hospital that day because I could not understand how nobody stopped. Like, they were in these clothes, these beautiful, clean clothes, you know, and not one person stopped for me that day, not for a hot dog, not for a leftover plate of dinner, not for a dollar. I stood there and watched all these people drive straight to church in their Easter best, and not one of them stopped for me. And after that, I, you know, I, I was, and that's how as homeless people we feel about Christians. You know, we don't go beg Christian events. We don't go to the Joel Oystein event. You know, we, we beg the boss. I don't know if he's Christian, but. Right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, sorry, I got off. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I, and I, and this is St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your host, Peter Karutz. This is Crystal Smith Hansel, and the title of the program is The Heart of a Prostitute. Crystal, I'm, um, you know, in the, mo- in the few minutes we have left, um, one thing I want to say in a very uh, uh, mean way is uh, God is not very smart. If he's going to choose a person like you to make a difference <laughs> in this world. That he's not very smart. <laughs> but he did. He did. So t- tell me, tell us, tell us about how this ministry started. So sitting there looking out at these people, it occurred to me that, number one, they didn't like Christians where they weren't going to listen to them. And number two, the Christians didn't really come to where we were. They didn't walk on, you know, beds of needles and crack pipes to get to where we sat. Right. It was a place that was not being evangelized. And had it been being evangelized, they were not going to have any respect for the Christians who came down. Um, so I just kind of got to praying, you know, about it. And I didn't have anywhere to live anyway. You know, I thought about, you know, maybe trying to get a job at McDonald's or something. But, you know, it's hard to work when you don't have a cell phone. You know, you can't get clean clothes. They don't pay you much anyway. Certainly not enough to get a place to live. And it occurred to me that, you know, I could just stay homeless. And instead of chasing drugs all the time, I could tell people how I had gotten sober through God. You know, because I'd been one of the worst addicts out there. You know, at some point, somebody had cut away a large portion of my face. And because I was homeless, it never healed. So like the whole right side of my face and part of my left had rotted away and stayed that way for years. 
You know, I was clearly known around the neighborhoods as, you know, the worst dope fiend you could know. And now I was just completely sober. And it occurred to me I could stay and tell people about Jesus. And um, I got the name because I went to a thrift store and I saw a little book by Mother Teresa. And I wanted to buy it. It was only like 50 cents. So I bought it while I was thinking about these things. And I read about Mother Teresa, who I'd never really heard of before, and how she cared for the poor in Calcutta. And I decided that I wanted to try and build a ministry to help the people that I had known and loved so long that just kept making that circle. Um, it started very, very, you know, successfully and unexpectedly. Um, I put in a wheelchair ramp on a house. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you don't have any money. You don't have any home. How does it start successfully? <laughs> okay, um, so I went and put in a wheelchair ramp for somebody. You know, sometimes homeless people get little odd jobs. Yeah. Um, I had read that book by Mother Teresa, and it said that Mother Teresa had taken three vows, that she had taken a vow of poverty, of chastity, and of obedience. And I liked the way that sounded. So I decided I was going to try and, you know, be like Mother Teresa. So I went and put in this wheelchair ramp, and I was given a cellular little smartphone that had, you know, like a month or two on it, and I was given $64 for my work putting in that wheelchair ramp. And But now I've made this vow of poverty, right? I can't spend the $64 on myself. So I have $64 and a cell phone. And, you know, how can I use that to the glory of God? And I had a friend. He's, you know, since passed on. He's since passed on. Um, tr tremendous life change before he passed on. But one of the biggest problems he was having at that time is he couldn't get work where he could make $10 to get off dope sick. For heroin addicts in the morning, they need $10 to not be horribly sick. And he was a very violent criminal. Um, he had had somebody before that was letting him work at the pallet yard. And for $10, he, you know, he could do this little thing and get his $10 every day. But that opportunity, had he was going to have to go back to violent crime to get his $10. And he wasn't happy about it. He didn't want to have to do violent crime. And the trash everywhere was driving me crazy. All those needles and crack pipes everywhere. I mean, who wants to live in the middle of that? So I told him I would pay him either $10 an hour or $10 a bag, you know, to pick all that crap up. And then he could have $10 to go get well. And while I was doing that, you know, I thought, well, why not use this smartphone I've been given and make a documentary about what homelessness is really like for people who have never seen the underside of that bridge with all those needles and crack pipes. So I started a Facebook documentary where I recorded everything I did. And uh, I started, you know, paying the, the poor to pick up the trash in the neighborhood. You know, I'd never heard of Cash App, Venmo or anything, but, you know, very quickly, you know, people started tuning in to, you know, my little documentary. There were people who had, you know, homeless children that were missing. You know, there were people who just wanted to see what the underside of a bridge looked like. There were people who had never seen active addiction. So, you know, very, very quickly, all these people started watching, you know. And in addition to watching, I had a rather funny approach to trash cleanup, you know. Uh, more and more people kept saying, hey, I want to come clean up trash. Because at the end of the day, no addict wants to have to go out and prostitute or pimp or commit violent crime. They just need their $10. And if you can give them a way to earn their $10, they prefer that to whatever sin or wickedness they were going to have to do to get well. Yeah. So every day I have more and more people that are like, hey, Crystal, let me pick up trash for $10. Your $10 was helping them take the first step to get free. Right. And so and I didn't want to tell any of them no because I believed God was big. So every day I would just tell them, well, show up tomorrow. And then I would go pray fervently in my tent for God to show up with enough money for all of them to work tomorrow. And each time he did, like, it was crazy because the first day I had like $64, right? Which lasted me like two days. But in the two days I made the documentary, I got in maybe say 180. So then the next day when they're lined up, I put them and they all could only make $10. They could make $10 each. And it got to the point where I would wake up, you know, seven in the morning in my tent, there would be just so many men waiting around my tent for me to wake up so they could go make their $10.
And in some way, I thought, well, you know, boy, I've got something here. So then I wouldn't let them have their $10 until they prayed. I called it the pray and pay. (laughs) (laughs) Pray and pay. I like it. (laughs) So you could pick up your trash. And then when you were done, you know, we would pray. And then I would pay everybody. And it just, you know, it became very successful. And through that, you know, a lot of good things came. For a while, I ran a sober living house. Uh, To this day, we send people, you know, for free to drug rehabilitation. We pay their transport and, you know, provide them with the things they need while they're there. You know, there's a lot of people that one of the big obstacles to getting help is that, you know, they're not going to have their cigarettes. They're, you know, not going to have anybody to send them the socks they need. You know, Jesus in disguise completely stands in the gap with anybody who wants to get treatment at any time. Um, I don't pay people to clean up trash anymore because I no longer live in the city. So instead, I run a mentorship program today where you can read your Bible and write me an essay on what it says inside and how you can apply it to your life. And I will pay you cash for that or double your payment if you want groceries. Um, Sometimes we do life skills. Um, Like a lot of people haven't been taught to parent their children. So you get like abuse in the home or something. So sometimes we'll stop the Bible studies for a while and do life skills. Uh, We offer free therapy to anyone who would like to get therapy or counseling for the things they've lived through. Anybody who utilizes our mentorship long enough, uh, we will pay to get you a place to live. You know, we don't do that right out the gate because we want to, you know, make sure it's a wise investment for our people. Um, But we we just do a ton of good for people. I have personally watched, you know, the salvation prayer. I don't really like that word of... You know, at least 30 to 40 individuals. I've saved, you know, 16 lives through the administration of Narcan, you know, where people have been dead and I happened to be there with Narcan and they got back up. You know, but I mean, that's not the, the, the part that's most important to me. And, um, you know, it's, it's the little things you do. Uh, so I told you guys about Brother Paul, who, uh, you know, didn't want to have to go commit violent crime that morning to get his $10. You know, he was whining about the fact he was going to have to go hurt somebody to get $10. And, you know, at first he was just, you know, hustling me to get his $10. But when he died, he was a very godly man. He was a very quiet, wise, godly man. Um, I had watched the development of, you know, this horrible weapon-dealing, drug-dealing thug into this quiet, praying, Bible-reading, godly man when he passed away. And for me, the real victories are like the day I came in the nursing home and I brought him candy. And he said to me, I shared today. He made that first step. He, he shared his candy. He made a step. Yeah. You know, I like those little steps when, when I see. But that's all it is, is little <laughs> steps. Yes. You know, And you did what Christ did. He met people. You met people where they were at. You didn't wait until they got sober and everything and mm-hmm. found them out in the suburbs. You met them where they were at, under the bridge, in their poverty, in, in their addiction, and, and God used you to do great things. Do, do you have a website? I do. It's jesusindisguise.org. Jesusindisguise.org. Oh, jesusindisguisestl.org. Jesusindisguisestl.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, okay, I was really hoping I got time to say one more thing. Do I have more, five minutes? One more thing. Call us if you want to copy this program at 636-447-6000. 636-447-6000. You get the last minute. One minute? Two. Okay, I'm going I'm to try really hard. Um, I get in a lot of trouble for the people I choose to help. Um, I choose to help ungrateful people. I choose to help people that go to prison. I choose to help people that continue to prostitute. And a lot of times I lose donations and financial support because they tell me to go help the people that have a chance of success, the people who are worth it. Um, and that's, that's not who I came to help. That's not the directions God has given me. 
I really wanted to tell you a story today um, about the heart of a prostitute and the heart of a bishop. Well, and we didn't get there. We but didn't get there. Crystal, will you come back again? I, I certainly will. I certainly will. You're, you've spoken to a lot of people. You've spoken to my heart. Look, know that God is with you in your suffering. When you look at somebody who's begging, you know that they're hurting more than they're begging. Uh, and pray for them. Pray for this ministry of Jesus in disguise, stl.org. And pray, please, be the one. Pray in thanksgiving for God's good work in Crystal and Crystal's good work. <laughs> Remember, pray for what you want, but pray in thanksgiving. Come back. See us next week. You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Well, all of our friends out on the internet, thank you for joining us. Crystal, thank you for joining us. This is Crystal Smith Hansel. Um, Today, I think we, boy, are you tough. <laughs> you're, you're good at what you're doing. You're talking about God. You're telling everyone that if you are hurting, if you're in this despair, if you are at your wit's end, guess what? God's there with you, and he has a plan for you. When you were at that stage, you didn't have money. You didn't have a home. You, 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 you did what Jesus did. He met people where they were at. You met people underneath the bridge, <laughs> walking on the drugs and needles, and you met them where they were at. You helped their physical needs, and then you helped their spiritual needs. That's what we do as Catholics. And you didn't do it because they were Christians or Catholics or faithful. You did it because you loved them. God loves us in our sin because he wants to help us. He will does. you come back again? I sure will. Right. Thank sure you, Crystal. Will. Tell us the name of this ministry again in the in the website. That is Jesus in Disguise STL. And if you're looking for the .org afterwards, you can go to .org or you can look us up on Facebook. Jesus in Disguise STL. Pray for us. Pray for Crystal's ministry and pray in Thanksgiving for all the good that God has done for for these people Amen. through you. Amen. We'll see you next time.